0: You know, beloved, I don't think anybody in here would would disagree when I say we live in troubling times. I mean, I, I, it doesn't matter to me where you're coming from, what your outlook on life is. I'm I'm kind of a, a, a pessimistic optimist, okay? I'm not a full-blown optimist, but I'm kind of pes, pessimistic, you know? Uh, my mom has this thing she cross-stitched in her study, and it's Ziggy. How many of you all remember Ziggy, the cartoon Ziggy? And Ziggy, and it says, it's just you and me against the world. And you know, Ziggy was the penultimate uh, pessimist. And and he said, personally, I think we're going to get creamed. (laughs) I'm not Ziggy, okay? I'm not a pessimist. Uh, I I am a pessimistic optimist. You know, used to, my, my team's motto when we were facing something unknown was, how bad could it be? One night, a a dear brother of mine, uh, Greg Luttrell, he he worked with me for a number of years, and and we'd had something major go on, and Greg and I were there until like 4 o'clock in the morning trying to figure it out and get it going. And and finally, about 2, 2 2.30 in the morning, we allowed we had a bad cable, and so Greg made us a new cable, And, and we got everything fixed, and Greg took that cable, and he he hung it up on a nail as you go into where all of our servers were at that time, and he said, we have seen how bad it could be. <laughs> okay. This cable was made at 2.30 a.m., you know, and and all of that. And and so now if one of us says, how bad could it be, we all look at one another. Are you insane? Don't say that out loud. <laughs> we live in troubling times. I don't care how you look at the world. You may be the most optimistic person on the face of the planet, but we live in in troubling times. We're going to look at that a little bit more this evening as we look at at Psalm 10. You know, in Psalm 10, David is asking, God, why why are you letting this happen? I mean, look at the world we live in. Look at the headlines. Look at the things that are going on. I mean, our prayer list. You know, the only way that it seems to me that we could make it shorter is if I just started deleting names. Okay, Our prayer list grows every, every week. There's, there's so much. We've got a dysfunctional government by anybody's measurement. We've got a, a, a nation that is at war with one another. Next week we will mark Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and, and it's the most divisive issue in our nation right now. And, and there's there, obviously there's no middle ground. You can't have middle ground on the sanctity of human life. We live in a time where a first grader takes a gun to school and shoots his teacher. We live in troubling times. God calls us to cry out to him, in these troubling times. Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. In the honor of reading God's word, let's all stand. The word of the Lord that came to Joel the son of Pethuel Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it. And let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation what the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awaken drunkards and weep and wail all you wine drinkers on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are like the teeth of a lion, and its fangs, or it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white, well like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails, the pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off before our eyes? Gladness and joy from the house of our God? The seeds shrivel under their clods. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are torn down, for the grain is dried up. How the beast groan! The herds of cattle wander aimlessly, because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I cry. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beast of the field pant for you. For the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Let us pray. Father God, we love you so much, and we thank you for the reading of your perfect and infallible word in our midst this morning. And God, as you illumined the heart and mind of, of Joel, when you gave to him this perfect and infallible word, we pray, oh God, that you would illumine our hearts and minds this morning as well, and that you would cause us to stand in the gap. And cry out to you. God, we love you so much. And we offer to you our love, our lives, and this prayer. In and through the name of our risen Lord and Master, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Obviously, this morning, we begin an examination of the book of Joel. And I've just told you pretty much all we know about him. Okay? We don't know uh, his, uh, you know, uh, uh anything other than his father's name. We really can't even accurately date when uh, this book was written. We, we just don't know. There's a lot of theories. You can go home and, and Google it, and you'll find uh, good conservative scholars on, on both sides of this debate that really can't uh, tell us when this book was written. He is never mentioned outside of this book. His name means Yahweh is God. And it is basically the reverse of the name Elijah. Okay? So, Eliyah in Hebrew is, my God is Yah. And Joel is just the reverse. Yahweh is God. From what we just read, Joel is under, or he understands agriculture. He understands the land. He knows what's going on. We also saw that that, that he's a man of God. Now, he wasn't a priest. He wasn't a priest, and we'll talk about that more when we get to it. But he was a man of God. Because he, he talks about God as his God, as my God. And so... He loved God. He is also familiar with the temple and its ministry. So we know that the temple was standing when when he wrote this prophecy. So I'm giving you all that we know about this book. Now, Joel has been called the prophet of Pentecost. Why would that be? How many of you all remember Peter's sermon On the day of Pentecost. And Joel chapter 2, which we'll begin looking at next week, is where Peter kind of concluded. He started talking about the Spirit of the Lord being poured out. Now, I need you to understand something. This is not the Spirit of the Lord that Paul is talking about or the empowerment or the infilling of the Spirit of the Lord is is the better way to say that, that Paul is talking about in Galatians 5, okay? See, an awful lot of the time we as Christians, especially us Baptists, since the mid-60s, Holy Spirit scares us to death, okay? We don't want Holy Spirit to get a hold of us and cause ecstatic utterances, we we don't like the notion that the Holy Spirit might get us to do something that we're not quite comfortable with. Now, listen. I'm not talking about making you know, do something crazy like paint something foolish on your forehead and walk through the middle of town. What I'm talking about is what well, we talked about in our Sunday school lesson this morning, that Jesus had a divine appointment with a woman in a place where it would not have been natural for Jesus to be. Okay? It would not have been natural for Jesus to be in Samaria. Why? Because it's Samaria. All right? Listen, when I, when I was a young preacher boy, you know, every, every preacher boy has this vision that they're going to be the next Adrian Rogers or the next Charles Stanley or the next John MacArthur and that God is going to you know, either use them to, to, to bring a church that, that, that becomes this huge church or that God's going to call them to some big city and they're going to do you know, this, this major work through them. And I looked at Angie early in my ministry and said, if God ever calls me to New York City, it's going to have to be an epiphany. He, he would just about have to do it face to face. I'm going to have to see him face to face if he calls me to pastor a church in New York City, okay? And so for you to find me in New York City would be unusual. When when y'all sent Angie and I to, to the Holy Land in 95, uh, on the way back we saw that we were going to have a, a little bit of a layover in New York City on the way back. And so Angie and I decided that we were going to do the New York thing, okay? We were at least going to take a bus and go see the Statue of Liberty. We had that much time. Well, when we landed in New York City, it was cold that day. We didn't have, we just had spring jackets. We didn't have coats, okay? It was cold. It was overcast. We were tired. We'd been on an airplane for like 14 hours, okay? And, and so we decided, this was back before 9-11, And there's another airport in New York City. And so I called, and there was another flight coming to Knoxville that was leaving within an hour and a half, two hours. And, yes, they would allow us to transfer our ticket uh, to, to, to that flight if we could get to the airport. And so Angie and I got on a New York City bus, all right, schlepping our luggage. And we got on that bus, and we went through Little Jamaica, And, 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 you know, the the kind of stuff that you see on TV shows. Not Times Square, all the glamorous, you know, Central Park. No, we went through New York City. And I allowed, I had seen all of New York City I ever wanted to see. I have no desire to go back. I've seen Times Square on the TV. That's good enough for me. All right? (laughs) And from what I understand, it's better on the TV than it is in person. The point that I'm trying to make is that in Galatians 5, Paul talks about these enablements of the Holy Spirit that come not just to a select few, not just to those whom the Holy Spirit has begun to give the unction to, okay? The Holy Spirit gives all of those gifts in Galatians 5 to every Christian, to every believer. Now, listen to me. He doesn't just dole them out. He doesn't just say, okay, you know, first we're going to start with love. And when you get that one down, then we're going to give you joy. And when you get that one down, then we're going to give you peace. And when you get that one down, we're going to give you self-control. Because listen, beloved, if we had to get self-control down before we moved on to the next one, we ain't getting no more, right? Can I get a witness? Okay. We're not real good at self-control. Okay. I mean, all it takes. If if I'm trying to watch what I ate, you bring a donut into the room and I'm done. Or a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit. Or I have to go downtown early in the morning for a meeting at at, at K. Leonard. And you smell Tipton's right next door. Oh, I'm going to have me a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit. matter of fact, I'm so hungry, give me two. Paul, the New Testament tells us that every believer gets all of these enablements of the Holy Spirit. And part of the ministry in our lives of the Holy Spirit is to cause us to grow in those enablements. You know, let me ask you a question. Do you love your wife, your husband, your children, your family more today Than you did yesterday? Well, I would hope so. Okay. You know. I love my wife more today than I did the day I married her. That's a lot of time. I mean, every day. We get to love our family and those close to us more. And so it's not that my love was imperfect when we got married. It just wasn't as much as I was going to have. And that's the real kicker about being married, isn't it? Is when you think it's as good as it can get, the sun rises another day. All right? And you get, to, you get more. And that's the same thing that the Holy Spirit is doing. It's what he wants to do in our lives. But Paul had another thing that he said to the Romans, what do we have a tendency to do? I love the way the King James puts it. We kick against the goads. We kick against the goads, you know. We don't, we don't like it. We don't like when, when the Holy Spirit is is causing us to grow, when the Holy Spirit is stretching us. How many of y'all that played sports enjoyed wind sprints? How many of y'all went up to coach and said, Coach, could I do some wind sprints today? Okay. You just don't do it. Okay. But at the end of it, at the end of the season, you're going, you know what? I'm the player that I am because of the pain that those wind sprints caused in my life. And so the Holy Spirit wants us to cooperate with him as he leads us into growing in these gifts, these enablements that every Christian gets at the moment of conversion. My mom and I were talking yesterday about, you know, the the good old days. Y'all remember them, don't you? The 70s for most of the people in the room. Okay, From my mom's generation, it would have been the 40s and the 50s. But for us, it was the the 60s and the 70s. And we had in every Southern Baptist church I was ever in, we had this this little register. It's not unlike the one we still use today, but every Sunday school class had this little register. And and they passed it around, and your name was on it, and, and it had these little check boxes. Okay? Well, obviously you're here, so I got that one. Are you going to worship? Uh huh. Got that one. And, and what I always found interesting is the word they chose next. They put offering on it, not tithe. They put offering on it, not tithe. Because that didn't let me off the hook. All I had to do is drop a, a dollar bill in the plate, and I was good, right? Even if I'd made. that week. I was good because I made an offering. Did you read your Bible daily? See, we want to measure ourselves by something like that that's objective. That's very objective. So that we can know where we stand. Holy Spirit says, Trust me. Trust me and let me grow. These, these gifts within your heart. Because listen, I may put you into a situation uh, in the next few minutes where you're going to need your love to grow a little bit more than it is right now. And then tomorrow, I'm going to put you into a situation where you're going to need to allow me to, to make your self-control grow. Where does that come from? God says He would never what? Tempt us beyond what we were able to withstand. Right? He would never allow us to be tempted beyond what we would be able to withstand. Listen, you can't do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. And that's why the Holy Spirit is part of our lives. Obviously, we'll have a lot more to say about that when we get to chapter 2. Peter's point, though, remember what I was saying 20 minutes ago when we started talking about Peter? Peter's point on the day of Pentecost, okay, was that that day was the fulfillment of what Joel says in chapter 2. You see, what do we focus on when we think about the uh, day of Pentecost? Tongues. We lock in on tongues. And we go, I'm Baptist, we don't do that. Or we go, I'm a cessationist. I don't believe God would ever use the gift of tongues in the world in which I live. Bless your heart, I do. I've seen him do it. All right? I've seen him do it in my life. The point I want to make is that Peter clearly saw that what God was doing What God was doing, and again, we'll talk more about this when we're in in Joel 2, was a fulfillment of what Joel had said God was going to do on that day. Now, Joel is prophet of Pentecost. But Joel is also the prophet of the day of the Lord. Now, remember I've told you. That when we read something in the Prophets, it first needs to have made sense to the people to whom it was written. Okay? If someone wrote me a letter and said, Larry, I need you to get to Alpha Centauri and you need to go warp four to get there. It mean anything to me because I don't understand it and I can't do it. Right? There's no way that I can do what you said in that in in that letter you wrote to me. And so we we've come to understand that when we read something in the prophets, that and not just the prophets in the Bible as well, it had to have it had to have meaning to the people to whom it was delivered. And so Joel is 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 doing what it tells us in Numbers. That the sons of Issachar did. Y'all remember that? How many, Well, I won't ask for a show of hands. Remember the book of Numbers? Okay. It, 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 near the end of Numbers, I think it's in Numbers 28, it says that the sons of Issachar knew the times and they knew what to do. Okay. They knew what to do. And what that simply means is that they were able to live in the culture that they lived in. And they recognized that this culture was out of sync with God's word and with God's will. And they knew what to do about that. Okay? And so Joel is writing. And and there's this terrible disaster. Okay? This ter- How ironic is it uh, that Angie and I watched... Uh, Jurassic Park, Dominion, whatever the last one is, the one that came out last year, and the main antagonist in that movie is what? Giant locust. Okay, I mean it's giant locust. Was it? In, uh, anyway, whoever wrote that obviously had some familiarity with the Bible, right? But Joel, there's this disaster that has come upon the nation, and Joel has done what he needed to do, he went to God and said, God, is there something that we did that contributed to this disaster? And God says, you know what, Joel? I'm glad you asked me that question. Pick up the pen. And so God began speaking through Joel. And Joel also is the prophet of the day of the Lord. Five times in this short book, Joel mentions the day of the Lord. Now, I said everything I just said before that to say this. The day of the Lord had to have meaning to the people that Joel was writing to or speaking to. And so Joel is saying that this locust invasion, this locust infestation, is a manifestation of the day of the Lord. But as we move through the book of Joel, we're going to see that Joel is not only talking about this this locust infestation as the day of the Lord, he's pointing forward to something else. And what he's pointing forward to is, is what we as Christians would call the day of judgment. The day of judgment. Now, I want you to notice, it is not a day of the Lord. It is the day of the Lord. There's one, okay? When Jesus comes back, we know what's going to happen. That the sheep and the goats will be separated and Jesus will execute just our judgment against those that are not his beloved we live in troubling times all around us all around us the world and even many in the church live as if there is no God as if there is no coming day of the Lord and Joel is going to show us that we are called to cry out to God and share his mercy with them all right We already started kind of going into verse 1, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But what I am going to say is that we, even though we're not writing Scripture, the Word of the Lord has come to us. Do you understand? The Word of the Lord has come to us. And God calls us to share that Word with everyone that we come in contact with. We are to share the message of salvation. Through Christ, we receive not only salvation, we are taken out of that day of judgment, that day of the Lord, because we know that we're not going to have to go through it. But we also know that as Christians, we have been given strength just like the sons of Issachar, to look at the world in which we live and say the hand of God is all over this. And to say that the time is now for you to believe in Jesus. Verses 2 through 14. Y'all are going, Phew. 30 minutes into this sermon and you just now made it to uh, verse 2 but we're, we're going to look at verses 2 through 14. Let me summarize it for you. The purpose of the locust salvation the locust salvation the locust invasion was to bring the people to their knees and cause them to turn back to God. Okay? That was the point. It was the purpose. We've seen and as we read through these verses every single part of their culture was devastated devastated the farmers all they got are dirt cods okay the the livestock are dying in the field they're they're so emaciated that there's no point in slaughtering them because there's not enough meat on them left to, to feed you You go to the store, and there's nothing in the store because all of the crops have dried up. This is a culture that is about to hit rock bottom. Everything from top to bottom, from the poorest to the wealthiest, has been affected by this terrifying day of the Lord. And in verse 14... Joel said, well, let's back up to verse 13. He says, Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Of my God. And then in verse 14, he says, Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord, your God, and cry out to the Lord. You know, you know one of the reasons that prayer meeting is not very popular anymore? Because most of us can't stand silence for more than about a minute. Okay? We can't stand silence for more than about a minute. This is kind of mean, but the next time, if you're in the leading kind of a group, call them to prayer and time how long it is before somebody makes a noise. I'll guarantee it'll be less than a minute because we're uncomfortable with silence. We live in a culture where our ears have to be filled with sound every moment that we're awake. And for many of us, we go to sleep with sound, okay? Okay. The other reason is we really are uncomfortable with putting the kind of time that Joel is calling for here in a solemn assembly and crying out to God we're uncomfortable with the amount of time, okay? We're also uncomfortable with going to God and saying, God, I'm at the end of my rope. If you don't move, I'm going to die. If you don't move, I'm going to die. And that's what Joel is telling them to do in verses 13 and 14. To call out to God. You see, all disasters, everything in our life that happens should cause us to turn to God, to seek His face and to beg Him for help no matter who we are. If we truly turn away from sin and seek the Lord... He will hear our prayer, and He will meet our need. Now, He's not minimizing the pain and the suffering, you know. He's not minimizing, this hurts. This hurts bad. This hurts worse than anything I, you, or any of us have ever gone through. It hurts bad. But He says And he deals with the suffering the only way that he can. And he says, let's turn back to God. He is telling them to simply cry out to God and trust that he will respond in mercy. Verses 15 through 20. As I said... Joel is using this this locust infestation as a picture, a foreshadowing of the day of the Lord. I mean, he's not minimizing the pain and the suffering that they're going through. But what he really wants you to come to understand is that if you think this is bad, wait until Jesus comes back. If you think that that our world is bad right now, if you think the pain you're going through right now because you've turned away from God is bad, wait until He comes back. He says, when Jesus returned, now y'all understand that I'm reading Jesus into this text, and it's okay for us to do that. But he says when Jesus comes back, it's going to be a time of catastrophic destruction from God himself. Read the book of Revelation. The beginning of verse 16, he used the devastation by the locust to foreshadow what would take place during that time. And he highlights four areas. Quickly, he says, the people would suffer due to famine because their food supply would be cut off before their eyes. They would suffer because all joyful worship would be cut off. How many of y'all remember 9-11? How many of y'all remember that we had a service? We had a prayer service in this church. When we came into the church, how did we greet one another? Was hey, brother, I'm so glad that you're here tonight. No. We just had that look in our eyes. What happened? How could this possibly have happened? We didn't come into the house of God with a joyful heart. We came into the house of God with a sorrowful heart, seeking God and begging for His mercy. When God's terrifying judgment came, there would be no rejoicing or praise coming from the house of God. They would suffer because all of the storage and the grain facilities throughout the nation would be empty and ruined when the day of the Lord came. And the economy would collapse and businesses would shut down. The day of the Lord would be a day when true believers cried out to God for help. Verse 19. To you, O Lord, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. You want me to translate that into, into the, the new Larry Standard Bible? God, there's nowhere else to turn. There's nowhere else to turn. My support system is gone. It's burned up. I have nothing left. And so to you, O oh God, I cry. God, I am begging you to move not only in my life, but in the life of my nation. Joel stood in the gap. How many of y'all, y'all remember Promise Keepers? Show my age again. A great movement of God in the lives of men uh, a, a number of years ago. And God was calling us as men to stand in the gap. To stand in the gap and to pray for our families and to pray for our nation. And Joel is saying that he's going to stand in that gap and pray for his nation. Listen to me, beloved. The lesson for us is to see the certainty of the day of the Lord. The coming day of God's terrifying judgment. We don't know when it's going to happen. But the day of judgment, listen to me, beloved. The day of judgment could be no nearer than your next breath. How many of y'all thought, I, I am so thankful this young man is recovery man. How many of y'all thought that young man stepped onto the field Monday night thinking that he very well could be playing, could be drawing his last breath? How many of y'all think that he went into that tackle thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm going to die? Okay. He didn't. He didn't. And if it hadn't been for the quick thinking of one of the trainers... Listen, beloved, the day of judgment is near for every single one of us. All of us will one day leave this earth and stand before the Lord to hear His verdict upon our lives. If we have truly placed our faith in Christ and are obeying His Word, the Lord will accept us. Solzhenitsyn, and I close with this, addressed the graduating class of Harvard some years ago. He said, the West was so committed to a humanistic worldview in which man is the ultimate measure of everything and materialism is the norm by which we measure success in the world. Joel was saying a day is coming where that's not going to work anymore. Where all of that's going to be taken away, it's going to be ripped away, it's going to be burned up. And so what Joel is saying has direct application To each one of us. Will we cry out to God? Will we stand in the gap?